Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the 180 Impact Podcast. I'm your host, along with uh, Robert Miller, and uh, we thank you for joining us today. We're going to pick up on part two of some of my story here of walking out of the police department and fixing that to a degree and coming back. But first, we want to just, we want to kind of tell everybody that in an upcoming episode, we're going to kind of lighten the mood a little bit. We've been sharing some pretty heavy stuff the last few episodes with your shooting and really haven't touched a whole lot on that. I mean, we have, but like you said, we've talked before this, there's a lot that goes into your shooting. Well, of course. And I, and I think that as we start <clears throat> discussing, you know, our stories, which are very similar with all first responders is that we're really just stripping a couple layers of that right. onion. Right. And then as we get into this, we'll go deeper on specific topics. Uh, but for the most part, we're just trying to get kind of an overall yeah. view, yeah. story. I'm sure eventually kind it's of happened, all so. going to come out. But So we, we talked about sharing some stories because we did have a lot of fun in this job. We had a lot of great times, and we don't want to necessarily, we don't want to forget about that as well. So some things we're going to have to probably edit. <laughs> I'm still in the profession, so. Well, statue of limitations. <laughs> right, yeah. So before we get into today's episode, uh, Rob and I want to give a, a shout out or really recognize uh, a buddy of ours, a mutual friend who's raising money for Mission 22. Uh, as most of you are aware, or maybe you're not aware, that on average, 22 of our military veterans commit suicide every day. And last year, uh, Guy Pickett, who's a, a, a dear friend of ours, yes. I went to the academy with Guy. He's been in law enforcement forever. He's a military veteran as well. And, uh, you know, he shared with me that he was on a call and had a guy commit suicide right in front of him. Right. And uh, so he is doing Mission 22 push ups and he's raising money. Man, last year he just crushed it. He was the top fundraiser, I think, in the nation. And he did, I think, well over 5,000 push ups. And I remember talking to him here and there, man. He was physically messed up. So go support Junior Pickett's. Uh, we'll, we'll put it up on our Facebook page. We'll put a link to his fundraiser. Rob, I'll show you how to do that. And then, uh, <laughs> But you can find him at Mission 22 Junior, Junior's fundraiser, or uh, look him up on Facebook and go go give a couple bucks to his cause. He's tearing it up, and we're really proud to uh, support him. So, all right. Um, so here we are. Yeah, here we are. Part two, Aaron. Yeah, that first one. Well, I had uh, had my mom. I had my mom listen to it before we um, edited, or after it was edited. I had mom listen to it just to kind of you know see what was up. Which I think is great. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes we as first responders do not realize that our family members and our loved ones have a story too. Your sure. mom has a story. Yeah. My mom has a story. You know, our wives have stories of being married to police. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I feel like we just don't give enough credit to those that like really support us behind the scenes because my wife, your wife, my parents your parents really have a story and you know it's not always heard what's what's listened to is our story right you, know, you got shot or you got hurt or but i think it's more important about those that <clears throat> definitely uh, help us yeah so we, we're getting to you know your second half of your story and um and it's interesting because you know you're bringing up stuff i had no idea of so i i personally enjoy this to some degree, I'm sure because I'm getting to know you a little bit better, and uh, you're really? you're on the hot seat, so I can ask you questions. Yeah, 
But so, anyways, I think, yeah. I think we ended it where, you know, you, you left work. You mm-hmm. said, I'm, I'm not going to work anymore. I think I'm quitting. You talked to the union rep. You know, I said, hold on. You ended up getting paperwork through your doctors to clear you for a sick and accident. Yeah. So that's kind of where we ended it. Yeah. And so to kind of start picking up on that, um, again, I didn't know what sick and accident was. You talk about work, workman's comp and, and all those things. Like, they'd never dealt with anything like this. Like, sick and accident, what, what did you get injured from? And what was it that put you over the edge? They wanted me to review reports that had whatever, psychologically put me over the edge or whatever. So, anywho, um, ended up literally walking out. You know, I think that's where we kind of left off. Drove home, a couple boxes of my personal belongings in the car, and that was it. I know for the next couple of weeks it was just that back and forth like I talked about last time. I can't believe I did this, yet this feels so good, and I'm free and the one, the one thing, and I share this in the class too, was that um, I did leave, but I had the city's vehicle when I drove home. <laughs> so I think they, they sent Reinstein, I think, to come out and pick up the car. Like, hey, that, that belongs to us. Um, and then for a couple of weeks, it was just almost getting used to the process. I was at home. I remember the boys would go to school during the day, Clarissa would go to work. So whether good or bad, I had a lot of time to myself to kind of start working through a lot of what's going on. And it was good in a lot of ways, but a lot of times it left me to my own thoughts and it was scary. And, um, you know, I'd go up to the park and walk a lot, spend a lot of time outside. And then it was just the unknown. And then I remember the city had sent me a letter in the mail that said, you need to turn in your identification and your service weapon. And I thought, as much as I was done being a police officer, I that, like, did it. There was something about that letter. Well, fast forward, I didn't respond to the letter, and they sent the department to my house to get my gun and my ID. And that was, I, w- I want to say, from what I remember, was the biggest turning point. Because when they came and took that from me, it was like the last, it was almost weird in a way, like that last little piece did they come with a search warrant? No. I should have I should have <laughs> gave that one a shot, right? You should have. Like, you said Yeah, search warrant. Come back with a search warrant. Yeah. I they probably would have tear gassed me and kicked my front door. <laughs> I, I had I had, to, I had to throw that one in. Yeah, thanks. Because, because you know we're police and it's you know, we make you know, fun of each other at some times when we know they're okay now. Mm-hmm. You know, so, oh, so but, yeah. but one thing I want to throw out there is that so you you know, you at this point in your career, you had how many years? I want to say 17, 17 maybe years. So we were hired in pretty much the same. You went through being an instructor and being over invested in our career, but you are a 17 year veteran and you're now in the detective bureau, mm-hmm. which it's hard work. And, and I remember you did a good job. You were working your ass off. I think you even got officer of the year one time. Yeah, I invited you. Did you show up? I, I did. You that. Yeah, you did. I, you know, I was proud of you. You had it too, so yeah. But I had to get shot in the face <laughs> to get it. <laughs> True. But anyways, so I think of this, and what's really important is that I, I think none of us are immune. Mm-mm. You know, you look at what happens to individuals, and I think sometimes we judge each other, 
And they said, I can't believe Joe Blow couldn't handle that. Well, the truth is, Aaron, is that we we all go through this. And here you are, a 17-year vet. You're on the detective bureau now. You know, you've been part of the SWAT team. You're a sniper. And so you, you had a good career. Mm-hmm. You know, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, we put everything in the backpack, right? And sooner or later, it comes out. So, I mean... It's not like you were just some retired on duty slug police officer or first responder because they're they're out there. Yeah, you're a hard worker. That's what I do now. Yeah, so you do now. <laughs> but I For think sure. it's important that people realize, like, hey, this could happen to anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And we talked last episode about when we were at that class, and you can see the kids that sit in the class that don't see it coming. Mm-hmm. But um, so so my, my darkest point literally came when they they came and took my gun away and my identification and I went in and to my bedroom and sat and you know you talked about having your your gun in your hand and thinking it's the end and mine came out of being so spiteful that I thought I will I don't talk about this in depth very often but I will show them I don't need their weapon to take my own life and I'm very proficient with firearms Looking down the barrel of a handgun and seeing a hollow point bullet is frightening. So as I sat there for a couple moments, uh, I'm like, man, we've been to a lot of suicides. We know what it does to the family. I can't help have my, my, my kids and my wife. My kids and my wife are going to see this, so on and so forth. So that was the point where I finally I put that down, and then I said to myself, I'm going to fix this. That then I, I became it's like a flip, a switch flipped, flip switched, a switch flipped, and I said, All right, that's enough. I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out why I got this way. I'm gonna find out what happened to me. I'm gonna figure out how I got so toxic and burned out. And that's where I started. Digging. So how so how long were you off before they came and got your service weapon? I wanna say uh two or three weeks, maybe. I wanna say two or three weeks is cool. Or right around that time. Um, and then from there, it was, I kind of had a little bit of an awareness of I was just toxic. I think that was how my anxiety and depression manifested itself the worst was just lashing out. I didn't know what was wrong with me, and I couldn't fix it, and I didn't want anybody else to try to help me. So that's how it started. And a few of the tools that I used were basically the first thing is I went to Google <laughs> I went to Google and said, how do you change your thoughts? How do you change your thinking? And this, and this is what Tyler and I talk about in the class, this was the biggest tool to, that helped me. And that was when I, when I Googled how to change your mind and how to change your thoughts, um, the whole neuroplasticity came up. And I'm like, what is this? Well, we're able to change our brain, change our thinking, change our thoughts. Um, rewiring our thoughts. I'm like, well, what is that? We're, we're police officers. We want to know how things work and why things work. And really, that was the first thing that I started doing was just looking and researching how impactful our thoughts are. Um, and I, I, I kind of like read books, listened to podcasts. I sought out different researchers in neuroscience, I guess, or neuroplasticity, and was like, all right, 
I'm going to start doing some of these steps and I'm going to start figuring this out. That was step one. Um, I would go up to the school, up to Riverside and just walk around. I started journaling. So I put together this whole program and worked on this whole process for like days and days, a couple of few weeks on end to try to begin to rewire my thoughts and get out of this rut of negativity, of anger. And that's where it kind of started for me. Got into counseling. You know, I was really against it. It's like most of us are. Well, what's that going to do for me? Um, still, that was that was my wife that was like, hey, will you, will you go to counseling or will you try it out? <coughs> no. And then after, you know how it is. After a few of those, will you try it out, it became, you're going to try this out, go for a few times, um, didn't believe in it, and it took me quite some time in counseling before I realized how much it was helping as well. So a lot of different tools. I think sometimes we seek out help when it's really it's really late in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think like counseling and like you said, just changing your thought process or just being open, you know, to the changes. Mm-hmm. For us, it's it's almost like I'm getting shot. <laughs> then I, I think maybe I need to fix some things about right. me. And not just that issue, just family in general, because, you know, that could have been my last day on earth, you know, and then I always think, like, how do I want to leave with you? And, you know, just worked and saying, this is, this is crazy. You yeah. know, I don't know if I can do this. And just walking out. So I think sometimes, like, the sooner that, that we can encourage somebody to seek counseling or, or try to get some help. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Because it doesn't mean you're weak. No, absolutely not. And that's still one of the biggest things. And it takes time. And I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, these EAP programs that people send you to to get five free visits, man, it takes, it, you, didn't, you didn't get this way over a couple of months, right? This took years. And I know that, that people mean well and want to help, but you have to pick a counselor that's going to fit you and understand you. Um, so I did that. And then once, once things started kind of turning around a little bit for me mentally thinking like, all right, I'm starting to see how this is working, the neuroplasticity and the rewiring and doing all this stuff. I then, I became obsessed with just using any tool that I could find. Right. I started doing yoga. We have a, a dear friend of mine who, um, is a breath work instructor. She trains out in California, Robin, uh, connected breathing. She's a family friend. I started getting into yoga and when I say breathing, I'm talking about like breath work, intentional. And, and a side note on that, <clears throat> the first time I went to one of her classes, she says, are you comfortable with your kids coming? You know, she did the family thing on the side. She would help us out and we'd go over there. And I'm like, well, yeah, why? She's like, you, you, you're going to be vulnerable. I'm like, we're just breathing here, right? So we, you lay down on the floor and you just start this really heavy, deep breathing. Almost like a Wim Hof. I don't know if you've ever heard of Wim Hof. It's like, uh, just look it up. I'll, we'll discuss it later. But this is where shit hit the fan. And you wouldn't think so. But I'm on the floor doing this deep breathing. And, and you want to quit. You're, you're almost like intentionally hyperventilating is kind of the only way I can describe it. But you're breathing, breathing. And you want to stop. Because physically, you feel like you're running a marathon. And I don't, again, I don't know how to describe this, but all of a sudden, like 
these emotions came flying out of me that I was done. I was laughing. I was crying. I was on the floor at the end of this, and I couldn't move. And all I remember was Versa coming over and put, putting a blanket on me, and Robin's like, just leave him alone. And I'm like, what happened? Well, there's a book by a psychologist. His name's last name, I think, is Vanderkolk, and it's called The Body Keeps the Score. So what I really found out was that when something's funny, we laugh. When we're mad, we usually lash out, right? We, we express all of our emotions other sure. than grief and trauma. So our body holds on to that. It physically will hold on to that. So when you let that sucker go, man, it just starts unwinding you. So I got into that. You know, I had her do a few sessions of that with me. And um, so let's. I know I just rambled. I know I just. So let's gave talk a lot about that for a second because you yeah. know I'm listening to you on the floor. You know, doing this breathing technique, and I'm thinking something you didn't know. This isn't like some witchcraft thing. You know, your <laughs> family's all around you, and there's candles burning, and maybe you're trying was. to maybe the exorcism or. <laughs> it was an so, exorcism. So, yeah. So. So what? So what were you, what were Clarissa? What was your family doing when you're laying? So we all were they just we, watching? Yeah. Well, we all did the class together, right? Oh, so they were doing it as well. Yeah. And and Robin was just helping us out, like, hey, she just become, she trains out in California, um, come back and was like, hey, you know, how would this work with other first responders and other law enforcement officers? Because you got to be extremely open and vulnerable. But no, the kids, you know, by that time the boys knew what I was going through. I became. Mm-hmm very open with them and shared a lot of stuff with them. So not to try to keep anything, you know, I away just, from them. I just wanted to clear the image of yeah. some seance going on. Because, <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know, that's, yeah, you know, that's you what know, cops think. Yeah, exactly. No. All right. So that helped. And then what? Yeah. Um, so I would just do that. got into yoga. I just, the practice of the rewiring, you know, I remember last week when we left and, you, you know, we were talking about this job becoming an addiction Man, that made a lot of sense to me. Um, one day when I was out at work, out at the park, by myself walking around, I f- was feeling in my pockets and I left my cell phone at home and I damn near had a panic attack. Right? We've been strapped to a pager or pager. I'm really <laughs> dating myself. Yeah, a pager or a cell phone at that point for 17 years almost, and it finally it finally dawned on me. I'm like, man, no wonder I was so wound up, so tight, 24 hours a day, seven days a week on call and that was another big epiphany of like I could kind of finally accept that no wonder I'm fried and burned out and depressed and all these other things so I mean really it became a daily habit of changing the way that I think changing my perspective on the way that I look at things getting into counseling right anytime that we go to training or you do trainings we've always said take what tools we're going to offer you a bunch of tools, put them in your tool bag, use what you can use, use what works for you. And uh, so we did that. I did that. Um, and there's probably a lot of other things that, so the rewiring, the counseling, the breath work, the yoga, reading, just reading. Did you ever think that you were just staying like in the victim role for a while? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, eventually I got a call from Chief Blocker probably about four weeks after I'd been gone and he came and picked me up and we went and I, I was able to talk to him as a friend because we, you know, we were friends. He was in the barrel. We were friends before he went overseas to the military. And um, I was able to sit down with him for a few hours as a friend and really w- 
was able to express everything in the way that I felt. And then when I came back to work, I was still very much, even after I'd fixed everything, I was still in a victim role. I think it takes a while. That's hard. Yes. Because you have to process everything. Yeah. Years. Yeah. It took uh, many years. Yeah. Because we want to point that the finger level. at everybody else when we have control over none of it whatsoever. So, yeah, absolutely. I played a victim. Um, I don't think it's intentional, though. No. I think it's just part part of the process. I think part of it, too, is, is re- that's reaching out for help but not knowing how to do it. I think that was what it was for me. Um, so, yeah, that whole process continued. Um, and then as I was going to counseling, you know, I talked to my counselor and – it was several, it was a few months and she would ask me like, what, what's, what's next? Because I was very adamant that I was not going back to police work. I'm like, I don't know. McDonald's is always hiring. If I'm, if I'm happy there or doing whatever, I don't care. I started finally dropping some of that talking to you at the pool. Like one of the first things is if you go back, you need to get off the SWAT team. And I'm like, man. Yeah. You have to clean your plate. Yeah. And at first, you know, of course, I was mad. I didn't want to hear that. I didn't even want the idea of even going back to work still wasn't in my mind yet. It was hard. Um, I didn't want to hear a lot of the things that you were telling me about resiliency, about coming back. I'm like, dude, I was still ashamed, I think, of telling you, like, I can't do this. There's there's still, right? You're always this hard-charging go-getter. And to say to your best friend that I can't do this anymore, that's tough. Um, well, you'd say it and I would just say, well, don't say I can't because we always say that. So yeah. I can't do this. I can't do that. But and I think time, part of it is just recognizing that you can, but it's going to take time and having somebody to believe in you. Yeah. Did you believe in me? I'm your accountability partner. <laughs> I'm your so only best friend. My only friend. Walking through all of that. Um, again, going back to uh, my counselor, Lori. Nothing was opening up as far as jobs, as careers. I didn't know what I was going to do. Finally, the wheels were kind of like, could you go back to work? Could you handle the work? What if you got off ERT? What if you got off doing all of this other stuff and just went back and did your job? And that process itself took a a while. So obviously, ultimately, um, I had a meeting with the chief. My wife went down and talked to the chief. And uh, we had lunch. And I was able to work my way back. And I really, when I came back, I set up a lot of boundaries for myself. No more expectations, no more, hey, I'm trying to do all this. I'm not trying to be the man anymore. I didn't care. Well, you're never the man. I know. Not not with you around. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But. Oh, my gosh. So as I came back, very slowly but surely, I had a lot of guys come up to me and were like, where you been? What happened? And. I guess the blessing or the good thing about that at that time was that I didn't care what anybody thought. I was like, dude, I had to pedal to the metal for too many years and I broke. I I couldn't take it anymore. Um, and then, yeah, I, I actually had a, a lot of our younger officers would pull me aside and start asking me questions. And I thought, man, there's something to this, right? There's this many folks pulling me aside. Uh, and that's when I got with Tyler um, and started, ha- he helped me build the class. And here well, we are. I, th- I think part of it too is that, you know, we had numerous conversations over, over maybe an adult beverage at the pool. And we talked about this and I'd already, 
had been gone from you know what real police work I, I'm still a police officer at the college but don't not really don't push it <clears throat> I'm kind of like I'm just like on the same levels Paul Blart mall cop that's how I feel every day but anyways like I'd already been gone I've went through my you know what happened to me and you know and and we're talking about this and I think part of it is what's important is that we're, we're all going to fall down. You know, I always say we're all going to have our turn in the barrel swimming just to stay alive. And people really are just looking to see if you're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. It gives Because it gives them hope. You know, it gives other people hope that, hey, you know, if something bad happens to me or if this might be how I'm feeling, that if Aaron can get through this, I can get through this. Especially in our department, I think. Because I would bring up, bring that up. You know? I, re- I was just going to say, I remember specifically, you were like, you need to, these young kids are, are looking up to you to, man, that out of everything that we talked about, to be honest with you, that was the hardest for me to deal with. I was so mad. I'm like, I don't care about these young officers. I'm, I'm broken here, man. But you, I hate to say this, but you were absolutely right. You're right. Um, well, you can't see it when you're going through it. I will just say that. And that's what, we, that's what I kept saying. I'm like, you're not seeing this. I said, but. You know, you're going to get through, well, you have to say you're going to get through it. I tell you that, you know, you tell me you're going to get through this. You don't really know. Sometimes you're like, I, I don't know how you're going to do it, but yeah, I'll at least be there for you. Right. But I think for me, like when, with you is that I went through that processing. We did it differently to some degree, but you know, I had to retrain myself. And, but, but when it comes right down to it, when you think of like people that are injured or people that get hurt or something i mean really all we do is we just want to know how it's going to turn out mm-hmm. you know so like you're a success story i could say why well, i'm too a little bit well of course you are but getting through those things and coming back to work and being resilient and not being a victim and being a survivor and looking at police work differently and not being over invested in being on a swat team or it just shows that, hey, you know, everyone's human. And some people are willing to share this stuff. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, people don't, I want to say first responders, like, people just don't want to share. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where. Well, there's a lot it, of pride that goes into this we're job. In a, we're in a job that it's like. You got to fix everything. And you're supposed to be strong. And you're yeah. supposed to have the answers when you And really you are. I mean, if you're doing this job for a length of time, you, you are. are. There's a lot of resilience, and, and absolutely. So when when we break, we don't know what that looks like. We're the fixers. We're the doers. So when we stumble upon a problem, number one, we shut everybody else out because we want to fix it ourselves if we find out what's going on with us. So, yeah, you're right. That's a that's a big piece of it. So, so really, um, going back, like, you, you know, when you start talking about this, just like with your shooting, I know that there's so much more that you went through that we haven't spoke about yet. And the same thing with this. I was kind of all over the place here, but really, you know, going through that thoughts of suicide. And I didn't share that for a long time. And I wasn't going to share that with anybody until I talked to my wife. And I even talked to my boys about it and got past that. Um, that That was hard, and I still don't like to share it that much right now. I don't like to, I just don't. Anyway, um, but those steps and those processes, I am, uh, it's hard to explain how to rewire your thoughts or the neuroplasticity. 
But we give that information in the class, and I think we do a pretty good job of explaining what that looks like. We call it meathead science, right, because that's what we do. We want the simple answers and the simple way to do things. But Yeah, so, like, when you're thinking of, like, it is uncomfortable to talk about, like, suicide, right? And especially in our job. But we – but in – First responders, we have a higher high suicide rate. Oh yeah, and we also have a high divorce rate, and we have high addiction and substance abuse. So there, there is an issue going on with us, but it it's really this emotional, mental side of it because we all train very well, like I said, you know, to do the task, mm-hmm. and you know we're pu- peeling the layers of the onion apart and going in because we we just don't do the best job training us emotionally to deal with processing what we see it's like front row seats of the freak show and it's like oh my god i can't believe this is great this is just crazy and it just wears on you mm-hmm. this is like what you see all the time and you we work in a toxic environment so like when you say suicide you think think about think about it this way we both went to the Chicago psych when we first started, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which had an 80% failure rate. Yeah. How did we get through that? I'm just glad I didn't know. <laughs> I did. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, then I was I, local here, so I'm like, dude, I'm done. I mean, there were people that were not applying with the department because of that psych. Yeah. I mean, there were people that were not passing, and I was like, yeah, how did that are you kidding me? But you think about it this way, like, hey, so you, we go through all this training, all the psychological examinations. Both of us come out somehow, but yet we, we do struggle. So when, when we go, so what is it about our profession? Because they hold us to a high standard. Like they're testing us. Are we going to be able to handle this? And at some point in our time, we are in the same boat. We both, we're, police are struggling. You know, what is it? You know, you come in, because I would say this. When you come in this job, I don't think we look at it like, how does, how, how could somebody want to kill themselves? How could somebody want to do that? What are they really thinking? And we don't process that. I, I would say like, I, I would say like, why would anybody do that? Mm-hmm. And I would say like, it's, it's horrible. It's sad. It hurts so many people. But then when I wanted to, and I remember that and how I felt, I, I can. And I, I think that's something that all of us need to understand is that somebody doesn't just come up with that overnight. Right. And when they really feel that way, there is that sense of hopelessness. There is that sense of emptiness. There is that sense, I would be better off. Nobody cares about me. Like, I'm just a burden. And you're talking about someone who would have never, ever thought about that ever mm-hmm. and then here we are we're thinking that way so what it does is it puts a sense of like hey we're all human you know like when when people are struggling you know we have to have some empathy so yeah yeah and uh, go back to that too is that like when you talk about anxiety and depression and i always thought like you'd i'd hear i'd hear people talk about well being so depressed that you can't get out of bed or being so depressed you can't and i thought are you serious until <laughs> I remember sitting on the couch one day at home and Clarissa was like, hey, if you want to go 
run some errands or go to the store and blah, 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 just whatever. And I'm like, yeah, cool. And I sat on my couch and looked at my tr- looked at the car in the driveway and just couldn't move. I couldn't get off the couch. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what is my problem? It's almost like you're paralyzed. And I thought, well, what, what, what can happen? And I'm like, if I leave the house, somebody's going to see me. They're going to start questioning me about what happened, where I'm at. And, and just the fact that, like, I was frozen. So now I can, going through that, I'm like, yeah, I can see where people can't get out of bed. For sure. It's a real thing. It um, is. And so I feel, I feel, I feel, I don't want to say I feel sorry, but I understand that. Now. Well, I, I feel that as a society that we have to be more understanding that depression, anxiety, and mental health, emotional wellness, that's a real thing. Yeah. It's so like, it's like asthma. I have asthma, right? Take medication. Mm-hmm. Or somebody has an injury or there's something that you can see. It's visual. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on that's not visual mm-hmm. and that people question it. People who question it just never had to experience it yet. Yeah, I believe that 100%. I do because I would say that I would have. Sure. We both would have questioned certain things yeah. until we're in it and then we're wondering like, wow, that, that that's serious. Right. You know, that puts a whole perspective on it. Yeah. So. Yeah. So really, I mean, the, the whole comeback thing is still, it's still a work in process, right? Or progress? Work in process? Help me out here. Either one. Process. <laughs> this is something that almost, when you talk about the job becoming an addiction, treat your mental health as if you're overcoming that, right? Because there are times when there's days and sometimes weeks when I'm just like, man, my heart's not in this anymore. Or you lose you lose the enthusiasm to work on yourself. And there's, I would say that there's times when you go through stuff and you think you're good. And then a week later, you're not good. So it will go back and forth, and you will continue to have to fight for it. But but you made it. Yeah, and I'm, again, still. So tell me what it was like coming back to work. Um, it was tough at first just for the fact that it, it wasn't that I was I wasn't ashamed of coming back to work. I didn't care what anybody had felt or thought, rather. But it was just I was done with police work. I didn't want any part of it. So were you doing like a full eight-hour shift? Yeah. So when I came back, they – um. I came back into the detective bureau. There was questions of if I could go to like training and do this and do that. And they, they said, no, you got to come back to the bureau. So I'm like, all right, cool. And then at that point I knew I was done teaching or, I mean, I was done instructing firearms, driving, no more SWAT team, none of that. I'm just going to do this. So I got to come in and just kind of hang out with uh, a couple Reinstein was one of them because <laughs> they wouldn't let me on call for a few months. Cause they sent me, they did send me to a fit for duty. Psyche veil. Yeah, yeah, I think you drove me to mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because the governor called you on the way back. Remember that? <laughs> she did. Yeah, you got a call. I'm like, who's that? And they're like, oh, it's the governor. I'm like, oh, Jennifer Granholm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I had to go to a fit for duty exam. And then after I somehow passed that, they said, uh, you know, I got back on call. I started getting the caseload again. And, um, did you change anything about your job? Oh, absolutely. It was uh, the control I had over my caseload my cases, what was going to happen after I did everything that I could. Um, I found myself to be very, very upfront. Um, I think with a lot of the victims as far as solvability and just, I don't know, I can't really describe it, but I was just very, I felt, I didn't feel trapped to be this. I don't know how to say it. Like you didn't have all the answers. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Thank you. 
I didn't have all the answers and I, I might not be able to solve this if we don't get people to come forward or, or I was just very open with that, not having all the answers. Yeah, that's the best way to describe it. I mean, when you think of your position as a detective, I think like patrol. When, I, when we were patrol, even though we complained, I thought that was probably the best years. It was fun. Mm-hmm. Take your calls, pawn off the, the hard work to detective. <laughs> So when I think of that detective role, I mean, you're deal- detectives are dealing with index crimes, you know, the CSCs, the felonies, where there's some serious emotional connection with people, and you have to see them every day. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can just shut it off. You have a caseload. Yeah. And, and you're working it. And, and they're, they're looking to you for answers. So you, you're like the final straw. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. When I think of that as being like, you know, patrol is, we work then detective is like, okay, it's up to us. It's, am I going to do a search warrant? Am I going to investigate this? Am I going to do a lead? Am I going to do a good interview? Then you have the supervisor's pressure of like, how's it going, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's a lot of weight on your shoulders, especially for the detectives. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, things did look a lot different. I, I knew that I didn't have control of most things. And what I did have control over, I did the best that I could. Um, and it was weird at first because, you know, not having all of those other special assignments and not doing it, it was just like, man, is this it? So I just set up boundaries and I, and I, and I just told myself like, Hey, I'm going to control this. And, um, you know, at this time we have a great group of detectives in there. It's awesome. I'm the old man now. So they're, they're all eager to work and do everything and they jump right in and help out. So we have a good, we have a great crew in there. Um, but that was what I did different. I don't have all the answers. I might not be able to do this. Did you like you change anything like what you're doing at, at home or anything for yourself or you spend time like time for yourself? I wasn't really good at that, you know. We, neither one of us were. I, we have what? We both live in the city. We have a f- five minute ride from work to home and that's shutting that off. And I made that like uh, I've always been told like go to even my kids like, hey, dad, when you come home, go right to your room and just hang out for a few minutes, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm in still in such work mode that when I come home, I'm wandering around the house. What's What needs to be picked up? What needs to be done? What needs to be handled? And then I can rest. But that switch is very hard to turn off when I come home. So that, again, to tell people that are listening, that still requires constant work, switching off from when you get home. And we're going to talk about that in detail uh, coming up in another episode because that's an episode of itself, the way we communicate when we come home from work. So, but I did change that up. Well, I think we have to, or we're going to end up alone. Yeah, for sure. So, good. All right. So, yeah, just uh, the takeaways, I guess, on this are, are it's okay to not be okay. It's a, You hear it all the time, and it's cliche, and you'll see a lot of stuff on social media about happy thoughts and, you know, motivational quotes and everything else, but <coughs> the work has to be done, and it's hard work. You know, I would, I would, uh, Encourage people to start reading about changing thoughts. Carolyn Leaf, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, reach out to me and uh, by email, and I can send you the book list that we give to officers in our class, about 20, 30 books that Tyler and I have read numerous times and have taken from. And it's just, it's work. So don't get discouraged. It's a lot of work. And the, the other takeaway I would say is obviously, you know, you're going to end up as a victim, be a survivor. Yes. And the one thing that we're always preaching now in the academy and is don't base 
your thoughts and your feelings on what you see in social media. I mean, it, don't. <clears throat> it's such a skewed outlook on what really is going on in society because, like I said before, when we were young, all we would ever be told is when an officer was killed in the line of duty somewhere in the United States. You get a lean message. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, we, right. we were never given any information on shootings, who was being shot in different cities. But right now, it, it just gives it gives the impression that people are just living through social media. Mm-hmm. So if I pick up my phone and I look at that, within about scrolling for a couple minutes, I'm going to see where an officer could would have been shot or some officer was injured in the line of duty, like every day. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to see something where an officer shot somebody, mm-hmm. shot somebody in the, in the line of duty and how people feel about it. And then, then we have all these... I don't know, experts, you know, Facebook experts <laughs> who want to comment on everything. Everyone has an opinion, and quite frankly, we don't, ha- we don't have all the answers always. You see a video, they all w- I always say they all look bad. We don't have all the answers. But if you were sitting there as an individual, whether you're a law enforcement officer, whether you're a person of minority, whether you're married to one, not everybody wants to kill the police yeah and just to to add to that quick go ahead before we leave like you would think and i work the road overtime a little bit now and being out and about it's like i i kick to to be quite honest with you this is probably more support now from all walks of life Mm -hmm. hey thanks you go into the gas station on the north side you chit chat with people and it's just like where's if you lived on the news and social media you'd think that the world's falling apart, which it kind of is, but well, not, <laughs> not like they make it. You're right. With a skewed view, it's depressing. It is depressing. And the so, other thing, too, is though, is that it's it's reasonable. Yeah. You know, be, when you think of, like, I always think of um, staff social media because, you know, they're, they're, a good pl- <laughs> yeah. they're, they're a good police. We're not all shooting at people. Yeah. But that's their world. Their world is what's on social media. Yeah. It's terrible. So get out, get out from the cop world. We tell, uh, we tell kids in our class, mingle with the sheep. Get out and do something besides police work. Have friends who are not police because they will keep you grounded. Yeah, that's a tough one. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, thanks for listening to this, even though we did get a little bit off topic. But um, that's it, man. Well, you can edit it if you want. <laughs> I'm used to it. Half a year, that's what takes me out a I week. It's crazy. So anyway, um, next one, Rob and I are going to kind of share some humorous stories and, and lighten us up a little bit. But uh, if you want a list of those books that I had spoken about, send us an email at the180impact at gmail.com. Uh, make sure you reach out. We're getting, I think both you and I, don't don't DM me and f- on Facebook for that list. I need to email that to you. So reach out by email. I'm getting, we're both getting a lot of people which is awesome, uh, reaching out on Facebook through pri- pers- private message, PM, DM. I don't know what it is. But, um, yeah, that's cool. We love you and appreciate it. And then um, anything else, Roberto? I love you, Aaron. I know you do. All right, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you at the next one. Later. <laughs>